Hey all, Jesse again. Maybe you heard about this already. We have a quick, easy favor to ask. We'd like to hear from you. We're looking to learn more about how and why you listen to Bullseye and other NPR podcasts. We have a survey up at npr.org slash podcast survey. We want to hear from folks who've been listening to us for years and from folks who are tuning in for the first time. In short, you. It's quick. It's anonymous. It's easy. One more time, npr.org slash podcast survey. And thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The Brat Pack, as you may know, is a term for a group of eight or so actors who starred in about a dozen movies in the 1980s in various configurations. There is Molly Ringwald, Emilio Estevez, Demi Moore, a bunch of others, and among them, Andrew McCarthy. McCarthy starred in St. Elmo's Fire, played Molly Ringwald's love interest in Pretty in Pink. Beyond the Brat Pack movies, McCarthy also performed in Mannequin, The Joy Luck Club, and another 80s classic, Weekend at Bernie's. In the last couple decades, he's been working more and more behind the camera. He's directed episodes of Orange is the New Black, The Blacklist, and Good Girls. McCarthy always kind of pushed back on the label of being a Brat Pack actor. He wasn't into the whole nostalgia thing. But as you're about to hear, something changed in McCarthy. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it. Brat, an 80s story is a memoir that looks back on an era that changed his life forever. It talks about the strange position that he and the other members of the Brat Pack found themselves in back then, barely old enough to drink, but being labeled as the voice of a generation. Our friend and correspondent Julie Klausner read the book and was so taken by it, she sat down with McCarthy to talk about his memories of that time. Let's hear a little from an Andrew McCarthy classic first. This is from Pretty in Pink. If you don't remember, Pretty in Pink follows Molly Ringwald's character, Andy. She's torn between Ducky, her best friend, and Blaine, a preppy heartthrob. McCarthy, dreamy as he is, of course plays Blaine. In this clip, he visits Andy at her job to find a new record. Hiya. <laughs> Hiya. Um, oh, we just got these glasses and it's really... Um... Yeah, I didn't like that album I got. Um, what? what? The record. Oh, the record. I, yeah, I thought it was a little too, uh... Too hip, maybe? Yeah, a little too hip. Well, uh... Think you can recommend something else? A little less political or something? Lionel Richie? Yeah. Uh, well... Hmm. Tina Marie? Madonna? Madonna? It's awfully deep. Yeah, very deep. But she's got such great style. Yeah, listen, um... Um, that's the alarm. Can you hold on a second? Just, I'll, I'll be right back. Andrew McCarthy, welcome to Bullseye. I loved your book. And the first question, it's kind of an obvious one. I'm sure you've heard, why did you write this book? But I know that you didn't want to write this book originally. And you certainly had issues with being associated with Brat Pack. So how did you write a book about not wanting to write a book 
about not wanting to be associated with the Brat Pack. Well, that's sort of the whole thing, isn't it there? Um, which question to answer first? I, for year, well, per, over the years, people have occasionally asked me if I would write a book about the Brat Pack, and I always said no instantly because it was just not of interest to me. And I think I had spent my entire life <laughs> since uh, the Brat Pack, since the mid-80s, I guess, running from the Brat Pack to, to some degree. And I finally sort of, instead of running and dragging it behind me, just turned around and looked into it. And I, I, I thought, you know, it had been this thing that had dominated my life. And my life was altered by those several years that I spent making those movies and being... Uh, associated with the quote-unquote Brat Pack. So, you know, and it had changed who I became, you know, very much. And I had never looked at that. And I thought, you know, you get old enough and you just kind of go, what what the hell went on there? And I just thought I could take a clear-eyed look at it. A couple years ago, an editor asked me, said, would you be interested in writing a book about the Brat Pack? And my answer was, huh, maybe, which was surprising because it had always been a, such a quick no. So mm-hmm. anyway, I thought about it for six months, and then I just started writing one night um, when I came home from work, and I just started writing because I wanted to see if I had something to say, For first of all, if I, had, if I remembered stuff. I mean, I used to drink a bit, so, you know, <laughs> I wanted to see if I remembered things and if I had something to offer and if I had something to learn from it myself. Um, there's that Joan Didion line, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I write to find out what I'm thinking, and I, I kind of ascribe to that. And to sort of what, what were my feelings about all that stuff, which I found out, you know. I, yeah. You know, so that's why it took so long, I suppose. I just had run from it. Well, the Brad Pack article, the sort of infamous article dubbing basically the cast of St. Elmo's Fire is the Brad Pack, you wrote about it in terms of having done a lot of damage, I think both personally and then in terms of the culture at the time and maybe in retrospect, do you think that the all press is good press thing is a new idea? Is it always been a false idea? What do you think about exposure for the sake of exposure and what that article did and why it was, in your opinion, I guess, negative? I don't know if it's always been a bad idea. I don't know if it is a bad idea now. All press is good press. I don't know if that's... I, I don't know that I entirely disagree with that, that you know. But the broad pack came about, like you say, it was supposed to be a, a small feature on Emilio for uh, St. Elmo's Fire, and he invited the writer out with him for drinks, which is probably a bit ill-advised in hindsight. And uh, he took along Judd Nelson and Rob Lowe, and they went to the Hard Rock Cafe... And, you know, did what young guys who are in the movies and drinking do. And the writer turned off to his subject. And then it became this cover story of, um, you know, kind of this. And the article's quite sort of scathing, really. And I remember when I saw the photo of the, on the cover of the magazine, I was in the photo originally because it was a promo still from St. Elmo's Fire. And I think my elbow is still in it. And I... I remember thinking, well, they cut me out of the photo. And then I read the article and I was like, thank God they cut me out of the photo. And But I digress. I don't even remember your question anymore, Julia. It's just it's, the all press is good press oh, thing. You know, and that there are I mean, people that would say, hey, at least you know, but it's, it. It's how you handle it. I mean, I, I, I've reacted to it in a negative way. I found it very pejorative, which it was intended that way. But someone like Rob Lowe, 
just went, ah, the hell with it, sure, and just embraced it from day one. And what Rob understood intuitively, which I didn't get, was that the public never viewed it in this pejorative negative way that the media portrayed it or the movie industry sort of saw it as. And they always saw it as, oh, the Brat Pack, I love those movies, those guys, you know, as the ultimate sort of in-group and who wouldn't want to be a part of that. So Rob just sort of was smart enough to just embrace it and or let it pass right through him, whereas I found it very... um, I took it personally, and I, you know, know who wants to be called a brat? And uh, I found it, you know, the minute you label anything, you're done exploring it or examining it or being curious about it. You're just, that's what that is. And Mm. we do it, I do it every day. Still, you know, all the time. We all do it. We just sort of, oh, they're that. Yeah, I know what that is. Not interested. And we're wrong so often, you know, because we just sort of see a headline or see something, and then we box it and be done with it. And uh, I didn't, I found that limiting. But, you know, all that's, you know, what writing the book did for me was help me to realize, you know, what the Brad Pack has become now all these years and decades later. And so, I mean, that we're still talking about it. it's ludicrous. And yet, it's come to be this affectionately iconic term for a generation of people about their recalled youth. It's not even about, I'm an avatar of people's youth now in a certain way. They, they, you hear they hear the brat pack and they go, oh yeah, remember man when we were in school and we went to those parties and they're thinking and already they're talking about themselves they're not even talking about the movies, and that's what that the brat pack has grown to become is that kind of touchstone for a generation of people for that moment in youth when people are just cusping into their own lives and stepping out and discovering who they are and there's no more exciting moment in life than that you know. And so much of your career is sort of your own youth captured in this bottle. And you talk about just the freshness and the nascency and the discovery that you were able to, you know, sort of have a record of as a young actor. Yeah, you got, you know, the the bad phases, too. But (laughs) Um, get to those. um, But. For sure. I mean, there is, I do talk about that in the book, but there is that moment when it's so attractive in people, when they're just blossoming. It's like a flower that's opening up. You just stop and go, oh my God, look at that rose. I mean, you just, it's, it is beautiful when it's something is blossoming. And there are scores of examples of people through the decades, you know, James Dean in East of Eden is blossoming on screen. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio in Who's Eating Gilbert Great is just blooming on screen and just like, oh, my God, they're wondrous. And they're not even talking about the acting. The acting happened to be very good in those two cases, but it's more a quality than a skill, I said. So, and that, capturing that, and that's what I certainly had in uh, my version of that in, like, Pretty in Pink and St. Almost Fire. And so that's what people responded to, I think, about me. I, I mean, I might I might cringe a little bit at some of the acting that I did, but there's certainly that quality of, of awakening that is attractive. Well, what I think is also attractive about that area of your career is that you seem to be an acknowledgement of your romantic co-star in the same way that you experience the wonder of watching yourself having this discovery. You, as an actor, are so gifted at reacting to the object of your character's affection, the way you look at her, the way you fall in love on screen, that I wonder if that's sort of part of it as well. Hmm. Well, 
I, I, I like women, so I mean, it's easy to fall into them sometimes. Mean, and, uh, you know, yeah. you can just sort of fall in that thing. And, and, and we've all been there, you know, so you just sort of open that floodgate a little bit and people project upon you. Yeah, but did you set out to make us all fall in love with you? Because <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> just how you would look at Molly Ringwald or even Kim Cattrall in Mannequin. And you just had this sense of, you know, you're a little self-deprecating about, you know, about your looks and you're very complimentary about Rob Lowe's. But I think your status as a dreamboat, which I'm sure you're kind of like ambiguous about, has so much no, to no, do. No, no, I'm all for dreamboat now. Okay, now that I- <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> At a certain age, you're like, objectify me. Um, <laughs> please, but- <laughs> exploit me, please, yeah. <laughs> I, but, I, but I wonder if you see in your acting, and obviously you cringe, but just how beautifully you take in your partner. And I think as a girl growing up with your movies and falling in love with you as I had no choice but to do, so much of that has to do with I guess, your regard for your scene partner. Um, I don't know if there was some method in it. Like, were you really in love with Molly Ringwald even when you weren't on screen? I was not in love with Molly, but I think one of the things about being in love is that you're interested in the other person. (laughs) And one of the things about good acting is you're actively listening and you're actively interested in you, you, you. And it's like you want to drink someone up. And I mean, I, I understood that. And I understood what being in love is that. I just... The more I bask in you and wallow in you, the better I feel. So I'm just going to keep wallowing in you, you know, and I think I understood that. And, you know, a lot of love stuff is unspoken, so it's just it is looks and things. So I might need to yeah. turn, on the, turn on the air conditioning over here. But, I mean, everyone wants to be seen and heard. That's just everyone universally, whether – and. When you direct your gaze and your full attention at someone. I remember meeting the actress Linda Hunt once years ago. And I was going to do a movie with her. And she took my hand and said hello to me as if I was the only person in the room. Like, and I, she'd been waiting to meet me for years. And she had no idea who I was. I had her full attention for the minute she grabbed my hand and said how nice it was to meet me. And I was putty in her hands for the whole film because of that instant. You know, so I think when we really stop and get over ourselves and turn our gaze out, particularly that age, the gaze is so often in. (laughs) And for some of us, it never turns out. But when we turn that gaze out, it's, you know, it's powerful. Even more with Andrew McCarthy still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Do you run a business or manage a team? Then it's time to switch to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, inventory, manufacturing, sales, accounting, you name it, Odoo's got you covered. So stop wasting time and start getting stuff done with Odoo. For a free trial, go to odoo.com bullseye. Hey, I'm Jordan Morris, creator of the Max Fun scripted sci-fi comedy podcast, Bubble. We just released a special episode of Bubble to celebrate the launch of our new graphic novel. At SF Sketchfest in 2019, we recorded a live show with Allison Becker, Eliza Skinner, Mike Mitchell, Cristela Alonzo, and special guests Gene Gray, Jonathan Colton, Jesse Thorne, Nick Weiger, and a bunch of other cool folks. 
We suspect he'll show signs of mutation when in a state of excitement. Now, Annie matched with him on Tinder, so she's going to act as the honeypot. I do enjoy being called a honeypot. Hey, you know what's better than honey? Gravy. (gasps) Oh, yeah, can I be the gravy sack? Out now on MaximumFun.org and wherever you get podcasts. And pick up the graphic novel at your local bookstore today. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest, Andrew McCarthy, is an actor and director and a member of the Brat Pack. His new memoir is called Brat, an 80s story. He's being interviewed by writer and actor Julie Klausner. You are very aware of the... I think we sort of touched on it, the emotional accessibility you have as an actor, but you also talk about having this sort of push pull of aloofness and sort of staying in your own internal perception of yourself. How do you reconcile that? You're not an actor that stays in character the whole time, right? You talked about how in Pretty in Pink, you really didn't talk to Molly when you guys weren't shooting. Well, no, I don't, you don't have to walk around set calling me Blaine. No, I was not, I was not that literal, uh, uh, and I always found that kind of odd when people were literally doing that because it's like well, <laughs> it just seemed weird to me. Um, but emotionally, I certainly would try and keep myself in a sort of zone, I suppose. But I had a lot and continue to, in my life have a lot of ambivalence about most things, you know, and that is, I think, hindered some of my ambition uh, because, you know, one step up, two steps back and three steps up, half a step back, you know, the people that just sort of have no reflective <laughs> gene and they just drive forward. I, I look at them with awe and they always succeed. I'm just like, wow, look at you. I mean, you have no shame. You have no, <laughs> and they just succeed wildly. And I'm just, I marvel at them and I envy them. But I don't really. Uh, but I part of me does. Um, but I very much have a. Uh, I've always, you know, questioned. So I'm always. I do something that I'm questioning, and then I'm examining. So it, you know, it makes for an uncomfortable <laughs> existence at moments, and it certainly hindered my uh, career, if I and my ambitions, certainly. But it's you know, on the other hand, it, it helped me to have uh, a certain awareness and a ability to see things from a different perspective, as opposed to just my own. And it's also, I imagine, part of the exercise of writing this book was looking back and seeing, well, that wasn't a missed opportunity. I just didn't want to do it. You talked about turning down an invitation to dinner with Warhol and some of the factory folks. Yeah, I, I, well, that was interesting in that I, it took me 20 years and someone else to mention it to me for me to stop feeling ashamed at missing, at saying no to that opportunity. You know, I mean, that was so classically me at that time. I went, yeah, I want to do it. I'll go. I'm happy to have dinner. You know, they called me up and said, well, you want to have dinner with Andy tonight? And I'm like, sure, I'd love to. And as the day wore on, I just grew more and more anxious till finally I called them up right before and said, uh, my cat jumped down the window. I, I can't come. <laughs> and, you know, it was just ridiculous. And for 25 years, I think I was just like, oh, man, that would have, you idiot. You just missed so many opportunities like that. My wife, we were walking through a Warhol exhibit at a museum. My wife, just, and I told her that story, and I was expecting her to say just that. Like, Why do you always, you know, just get over yourself and do it? She said, well, maybe you just didn't want to be exploited or, you know, seen as a an amusement, I think is what she said. And I looked at him and went, oh my God, that's so largely true. And there was also the anxiety of the social anxiety of it, but there was also largely that part of me. I just didn't want to be, you know, so it took me 
quarter century and someone else's insight to realize that what I did was fine. But that was so much of, I guess, what writing the book helped me discover that I did just fine. And that so many of what I perceived were mistakes and missed opportunities were simply who I was, who I am, and that it was fine. And the things that, you know, limit me and stop my progress also are part of my assets. And you were turned off by Hollywood after experiencing some of the most Hollywoody th- things that would make people say, I'm staying here forever, which is living with Jackie Bissett. Well, I should have uh, I should have ended quit show business right the, the second I left Jacqueline Bissett's At house. one point, you went out to a dinner with Liza, and then you ended up at Sammy's house late at yeah. night. I mean, these are Hollywood experiences. No, I did have, yeah. No, and I didn't turn off to Hollywood so much as I just, I enjoyed it. I, I just didn't, wasn't. For me, it wasn't my life. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't interesting to me. It wasn't. Yes, but going out to dinner and sitting next to Liza, and then going up to Sammy Davis Jr.'s house, and you know, and shooting pool with Sammy, and you know, <laughs> I mean, it's so bizarre for this kid from New Jersey at 21, 22, kind of. How the hell did I get here? But you know, those people were all very kind, and you know, to us and to me. You know, that's when old Hollywood sort of still was around a bit, and. You know, they were great. And Jacqueline Bissett was extraordinarily generous to me and kind and patient and loving and, you know. And I was appreciative, you know. I was an appreciative young person. You know, I, I was a bit lost and that wasn't hard to see. And those people were very generous. And you were on stage. Is that something that you preferred or it was just different than acting on film? I know that you have this curiosity with the camera that Later, well, I was, you know, led I was, you to directing. I, I was studying in a theater program at, at NYU when I got the first, well, I was kicked out of school, but I had been studying at school um, theater, and I always imagined I would be in the theater because I couldn't have imagined being in the movies. And I love doing, you know, I'd have to say to this day, the happiest times I've had professionally have always been in, in the theater, you know, but I have such... Uh, nerves i think on on first nights that i've often i've sworn i'll never do it again every time i'm on a first night in a play and i go i don't care how good it gets i will never do this to myself again the anxiety and stress i felt was so much but i i have the most satisfying i've ever felt was when i was on stage professionally you know because that that's a a very alive experience but then having said that i didn't pursue it uh you know, I dabbled back and forth in it over the years and didn't sort of dedicate myself to that. So, What is your attitude towards acting now? Because I know that you're definitely a more prolific director currently. Well, yeah, no, directing is my day job now. Um, and yeah, I mean, I direct lots of TV shows so and, and travel writing. But I, you know, I, I acted again. I'm just going to go out next week to act in something. I, I direct this show sometimes called Good Girls, and I've been acting on that a little bit, and I'm going to go out next week and do it again. And I, I hadn't acted in a number of years till I did this bit on Good Girls. You know, I was working, the producer said, do you want to, we have this thing of this guy, you want to do it? And I'm like, yeah, sure I do. And anyway, I found it very... Um, it was really much more fun than I remembered it being. And, I, and acting always used to cause me such anxiety when I was younger. And I just found it to be sort of that joke of the two fish swimming in the water and the one fish passes the other and says, hey, ain't the water fine today? And the other fish says, what water? 
And that's how I sort of felt when I started acting again. When I went on the show, I was just like, ultimately who I am, you know. And I used to say it's not who I am, it's what I do, but I, I think it's, it's who I am. It's how I located myself. First, when I was 15 years old and discovered acting, I discovered who I was. It helped me feel safe in the world and have my place in the world. And as I got away from it, I got into other things. But I think going back to it was uh, exciting in a certain way and sort of liberating. So, you know, and I have great respect now, you know, because I'm doing, directing people all the time now. And, you know, when I see good acting, I just love it. How much of your attraction to directing had to do with your curiosity around the camera and what it does and how much of it is sort of more about having been on the other side of it and thinking, oh, it would be nice to be in control of this? Well, yeah, all of the above, I suppose. But, uh, you know, for my ego and vanity, I enjoyed the singular position of directing. There's no one else on the set that's directing. Yeah, so I, I think I enjoyed having that unique position, and I still enjoy that aspect of it. I like, you know, I know how to work now. I've worked with 100, 200 directors, most of them not barely competent, uh, a, a, a couple terrific, most of them good craftsmen. But nothing, you know, most time directors, particularly in television, are not concerning themselves with acting. They just have, there are a million things to think about, mostly the clock and getting the shot and just getting it done, getting it again. And I understand that completely. So whenever I, which I, because I come from acting, I, whenever I give attention to actors, they're like shocked. Like, oh my God, <laughs> thank you for paying attention, you know. Um, and I do pay attention because I cringe. I can't, if I'm cringing back there, I just can't take, I'm not going to tolerate. I can't, we, we have to fix this. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can't, I can't be cringing back there. And because I have every actor neuroses there is, I understand them. And so I'm able to help an actor and I can talk to them very quickly about how to get out of it. And it always comes back to acting 101, which is you came in here to get something, get it. You know, it's the first thing you learn first day of acting school. And it's the thing people forget instantly. You came in to get $10. I want $10 from you. You don't want to give me $10. We have a scene. We have conflict. And I'm going to get that $10, whether I seduce you or browbeat you or whatever, many different ways. As long as I don't lose sight of that, I need that $10. We're going to be fine. And I tell new actors and, you know, I say it to Jane Fonda, you know, Jane, remember you came in to get the $10. And she goes, oh, Jesus, thanks, Andrew. Jeez, how can I? You know, and so I digress. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Is it fun directing James Spader on Blacklist? I love directing Jimmy because he's, he's all the things I was talking about before. He's, you know, he's very smart and he's very well prepared. That You know, the one thing that I find shocking is how unprepared so many actors are, that you could show up unprepared. I just find that shocking. And so many are. And they cause then it so caused themselves so much problem, so many problems, by trying to pretend that they're not unprepared. And it's just like, dude, it's so transparent. You don't know your lines here. So okay, let's just take it bit by bit. Then let's just call it what it is. Though you didn't do your work, which you can't, of course, say. You know, people ask me if being an actor is good preparation for directing, and I always say, yeah, to somewhat. But really, the best preparation for directing is having small children. You know, <laughs> and it is because you have to constantly redirect people from their own foibles and neuroses into something else and you'll create a space and go okay here's the space 
this is you can do anything you want in here, but these are the boundaries. Yeah. Okay. Hit and your mark. Hit your mark, kid. That and also just sort of like you don't tell the other actor what to do. I'll handle that. You know what I mean? Or don't worry. You know, one of the anyway. There's lots of things, but I, I, I find it. I enjoy it a lot, and I love the technical aspect of it, which uh, was a great relief to me. And it was a great relief to me not to be stared at. You know, so it, yeah. when I started directing, to not be the absolute focus of attention. And yet to have a unique position upon the set, I liked that. We'll wrap up with Andrew McCarthy in just a minute. When we come back from a break, he has kids now, kids who have seen Weekend at Bernie's, the weird, morbid comedy where two guys go on a long vacation with a corpse. Which begs the question, what do Andrew McCarthy's kids think of Weekend at Bernie's? Yeah, that's right. We're not afraid to ask the tough questions. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Investigations into police use of force and misconduct were secret in California until now. We've sifted through hours of interrogation tape to find out who does the system of police accountability really serve and who does it protect. Listen now to every episode of the new podcast On Our Watch from NPR and KQED. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Andrew McCarthy. He's an actor and director and was a charter member of the Brat Pack in the 1980s. He starred opposite Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink and in St. Elmo's Fire. Along with being an actor and director, he's now a writer. A few months ago, he released a memoir called Brat, an 80s story. It's about the Brat Pack era and how strange and painful and uncomfortable and thrilling it was to be at the epicenter of a cultural phenomenon. McCarthy is being interviewed by our friend and correspondent, Julie Klausner. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Which is one of my favorites, and I hope that you're affectionate toward it. I think you see, it's, it's very clear from the book how affectionate you are towards the films that sort of made you. I, I was particularly happy to see that you had affection for mannequin for example <laughs> i love i love mannequin i mean i am embarrassed to say i love mannequin, I love mannequin. And you're it, in a safe space here it's uh, yeah it's you know i love all those movies now you know it did take me years i as i ran from them you know and but i I love all of them and for different reasons but mannequin's particularly sweet because it's such an open-hearted innocent movie and for pretty in pink were you surprised when it needed a reshoot? Well, no, I wasn't particularly surprised it needed a reshoot. I was surprised it was successful. Like, you know, as I wrote in the book there, I, I, I didn't like when the original ending was there where I sort of diss Molly and sort of don't show up for the prom with her and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I thought, I have to back up, I thought the movie was a ridiculous movie about a whole movie is going to be about a girl wanting to go to a dance and making a dress. I mean... This is going to hold, and so clearly I was wrong. And but 
the original ending where I diss Molly was, I thought, you know, unsatisfying. And so luckily when they did, they did the test screening and the audience felt the same way. They loved the movie until that moment. Then they hated the movie. And, you know, John Hughes being the smart businessman he is said, okay, let's reshoot that. And that's your fault for being so dreamy. Well, you know, yes, naturally. Um, I mean, no, it but, kind of is, Andrew. You're joking, but it kind but, of is. But, uh, well, that, you know. Because Blaine that, was that, not written to be that lovable. No, he was that, sort backs of up to, to that backs a, up to Molly, yeah. you know, because I, Molly got me that part. Because, as you say, the movie, the part was written for like a high school. Like a jock. Jock, you know, quarterback type, square jawed, you know, broad shouldered kind of, you know. That guy. And I was clearly not that. But Molly, when I went into audition, Molly, you know, said, that's the guy. And John Hughes said, that wimp. And, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But, uh, yeah, that was yeah. all Molly. The, one, that the one that's going to cost us thousands in reshoots. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it had to end that way because it's a fairy tale. Really. It's just a little fantasy, that, that movie, a little fairy tale. So it has. To, there's only one way for those things to end. But the way that you played it makes... Because what Blaine does to her is unforgivable. But the way you play it, you want them to end up together anyway. You want you want to forgive him just because the two of them have this... I mean, you're just looking at her like this and it's just overwhelming. So, like I said, I mean, I think that's so much to how you how you played it. Well, that was largely the wig as well. You know, and the, what a wig! And uh, what that a was wig. right from. I think that was from Party City, or was it just a raccoon? <laughs> it could that was, well have been from Party yeah. City. It was a terrible wig, yeah. And um, for the reshoot, because I was at a, I had a shaved head because I was doing a play in New York, and so yeah, I had this. So if you look at that scene, which I've now seen, you know, thousands of times over the years, what's the clip they show when I go up to Molly at the prom and kiss her and say I love you or I believe in you, whatever it was I said. And, you know, all I can think about is just bad wig acting because I look so, I look so, uh, like I'm suffering and in so much pain. And it's really just the wig is so ill-fitting that I look so forlorn that it's for sort of did all the it, well, work. Well, it looks like Blaine is very, regrets being <laughs> awful. So regret, it works, it works beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do an actor's secret for Blaine? That thing where only an, for, for those who don't know, an actor's secret is, when an actor knows something about his character that is not, you know, explicit. Well, I think you always want to do that. That really, anybody with a secret is sort of, even if you're aware they have a secret, or not, there's something about that leans you forward and sort of you're drawn to them. But in that movie, I did not actively, you know, that movie. I had just been in Saint Elmo's Fire, where I was starting to become public, and young women were suddenly attracted to me where they had never been before. I'd been invisible a week before. And so suddenly I was attractive and then I was sprinkled with catnip, you know. And so there's nothing that builds confidence in a 22-year-old young guy <laughs> as having women suddenly find you very attractive. And that gave me a certain not confidence, but just a feeling of expansiveness that was suited that part well. So you couple that with the vulnerability and sort of oversensitivity coupled with a sense of like feeling your oats a little and you've got this dichotomy that is, you know, a good recipe for that particular movie. Have you showed it to your kids? Do they like it? No, my kids are no interest in seeing my movies. Oh, no! Um, well, my, you know, I've told this before. My My son several years ago watched Weekend at Bernie's and he said, he was about 15, I guess, at the time. He said, Dad, I love you. 
That's the stupidest movie I've ever seen. To which I said, Sammy, that's the point. Come on, dude. We made two of those. And um, and my daughter, some of her friends told her she needed to watch Pretty in Pink. She's 14 now. I guess she was 13 at the time. And so she watched the trailer for Pretty in Pink and saw me kissing Molly and said, I, I don't want to, I'm not watching some movie where you're <laughs> kissing some other woman. I'm not watching that. So, no, they have not seen. <laughs> it's ancient history. Weekend at Bernie's Saved You, you wrote after a run of flops. Um, it is a wonderful, goofy, extremely stupid underrated I love Bernie. Movie. I think Bernie's great. I, I, yeah, you know, I, don't, Ber- I don't really Bernie have lives. a question. I just sort of wanted to share that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say, I, when I said that in the book, I said, Bernie saved my life. It, it was a good transition for the, for the to start the next chapter. But uh, it, it was also, an act break. Yeah. It also, yeah, it was a good act break. And also, I just enjoyed it so much. I hadn't gotten a chance to play comedy like that and to play that part, to play the sort of jerk. And, you know, I found that really... Well, you got to be the guy with the swagger, not the one who's, you know, sensitive and heard and gets the girl. Yeah, and that, that was the part they asked me to do. And because I had been, I was successful at that time, I said, I don't want to play that. I want to play the other part. And they went, okay, sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I loved that. But that was, and I based that entirely on my, my friend, a friend of mine. Everything about it. The look, the purple high tops, the Hawaiian shirts, the shorts, the idiotic attitude. <laughs> All of it was just, I just imitated my friend. What kind of a host invites you to his house for the weekend and dies on you? I, why would he do this, huh? I mean, he had everything. A house, cars, women. This is tragic. I don't understand why he couldn't wait until Monday to kill himself. Look, we, we, we have to call the police, huh? I mean... And how am I going to get back to the city? He promised me a ride. Knock it off, Larry. Who cares about a ride? We're talking death here. I mean, this is just my luck. I finally catch a break at the office, finally see some light at the end of the tunnel, and wham! God! Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What am I going to tell them? Huh? I mean, they, they, they might think we had something to do with it. You know, I told everyone at the office we were going out to Bernie's house for the weekend. They were so jealous. I mean, I loved it. <laughs> now what am I going to tell them? You wrote about a lot of Obviously, very personal stuff in this book. Uh, you mentioned your drinking. You mentioned your dad, with whom you've had a complicated relationship. And I wondered, what was the hardest thing about writing this book? Was it that stuff, or was it sort of more of the connecting the dots? Well, there were three things that were important if you were to be interested and learn about that time in my life. And one was I was successful in movies. One was that I had a drinking issue. And one, that my father and my relationship was very fraught and got worse the more successful I got. And to take any one of those two, it's like a three-legged stool, and to take any one of those out, you would not be getting the complete story of what happened. So I first wrote sort of all the professional kind of stuff, and then I layered in the drinking and then my father stuff. Those weren't particularly hard to write about uh, in the sense I've talked about my drinking in the past, you know, and it's a long time ago, so it's not, so it's fine. I probably wouldn't have talked about my dad if I hadn't have reconciled with my dad before he died. Uh, I would have just had respect for that, I guess, left that alone. But now, you know, my dad, he was freewheeling. He didn't, he had no secrets. So, I mean, he didn't, uh, that was fine. I had more difficulty writing about the moments like when I was at the Paramount 75th anniversary event and I was so hungover and just it felt like such a op- wonderful opportunity. I was surrounded, you know, I'm invited to be in this event with all these l- 
legends of like, you know, there's Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston and James Stewart and Olivia de Havilland and Liz Taylor one after, you know, Robert De Niro and one after another. 75 of them, hundreds, however many there were there. And little Andy's there. And I was so hungover and so sort of ashamed of myself because I just felt so a mess that opportunities like that that I sort of squandered. I don't really have regrets, but that one had been like, ah, oh, come on. Would have been nicer to handle that a little better. So moments like that to really sort of go back and sort of unpack were like, yeah, no, that that was not uh, your best moment. It seems like the hangovers were the bad parts when you talk about the effect of alcoholism on... Well, it's a, I mean, I suppose the fear and the hangovers would uh, unleash, I suppose, great fear. And then what do you do to get rid of fear? But you drink more. And so, you know, and then you start to cycle over again. And then when you're drinking, you know, you're hiding. And so then, you know, it's just a vicious kind of thing. And, you know, the beauty of drinking is that everybody's exactly the same. Everybody thinks they're unique and doing, getting over and all this stuff. And you're all this, you're a dime a dozen. <laughs> you know, it's just drinking snuck up on me. I wanted to become a drinker. You know, all the actors I admired were kind of drinkers and all that. I wanted to become so I made myself a drinker. I was a very apt pupil. And uh, then, you know, drink, drink works until it doesn't. And then it turns around at some invisible point and consumes the very thing that you were... It was helping you with. And so, you know, that line I like, I think I quoted in the book, is the man takes a drink, the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man, I think is very apt. And, uh, yeah, so, but, you know, again, that's just a dime a dozen story. And so I, I drank for several years. It took me several years to realize I had a problem and several years to do something about it. And it affected your acting? Oh, sure, of course. Of course, I mean, like I always say, though, I'm always careful to say that my act, my success in movies did not cause my drinking. My drinking was very much in and of itself. And it certainly affected my acting hugely in an adverse way, but I didn't drink as a reaction to anything except itself. But certainly it affected my acting in a very adverse way. And, you know, right when I really needed to be pivoting and trying to do more, uh, upping my game, I opted out and took another drink, you know. So... But, but again, you know, the, the ground, the rubble of that, of my drinking is the foundation for the rest of my life. So it's turned into a great gift as well. You know, the same way, you know, the Brad Pack, to bring it back to that for just a second, is, is that it was what I perceived to be this very negative thing has ultimately been one of the greatest blessings of my life. You know, I could have been in the exact same movies. And if the Brad Pack label didn't exist, we wouldn't be talking today. You know, it elevated all of us and as it, as much as it contained us and stigmatized us it elevated us all into this kind of culturally iconic position that would never have existed if it were just simply the movies you talk about your reluctance to brand yourself you didn't have a word for it then but it almost was as though that article had done that for you and i imagine oh that certainly we were branded yeah i mean your brand is a brat your brand is um unprofessional um untrained. That was one of the things that really bothered me because one of the things... Well, yeah, you went to acting that, school. It, it, bra- like, it said how the you. actors bragged about not being trained and I was very... All I wanted to do was train and be an actor. So it, it just felt like I was, oh, wait, this isn't who I am. <laughs> and so I felt unseen like we were talking before about people wanting to be seen and heard. I felt unseen. I felt seen for something that I was not. And that... And I felt utterly powerless to alter that. And that's why later when I started writing and travel writing and things, I was very careful to write for, you know, the New York Times and National Geographic and all these outlets that were respectable. So that when I was sort of outed for being this actor, kind of go, oh, well, no, he's, 
we can't dismiss him because he's, I, I branded myself and, you know, I was very actively conscious about that. And directing too. I wanted to direct good shows so that it's, you know, because you, you're very quickly, you know, boxed in. And unless you actively don't be, you know. When was the transition between acting and writing? Was there sort of a, a period in the middle where you were figuring things out? Was it sort of seamless? Was there an overlap? I was successful for six, seven years in acting, really. And then I chased it for another decade. You know, and I discovered um, travel writing. It is, you know, I, that's a longer story. But I began traveling a lot. And, I read that book, too. <laughs> and Yeah, it's a different book. Uh, and so, yeah, I, you know, I wrote for about 10 years before I actively started to try and do something with my writing. Because I, I was a terrible student in school, and I didn't feel I, have, I, didn't feel I was smart or uh, capable of, of writing in that way. So I just wrote for myself, and then eventually I wanted to do something with it, and then I became successful at that, because, and, and largely because I, the same thing we were talking about about directing, I knew to tell a story. And, you know, and so I employed the tools I knew from acting, and then later that helped me with directing. You know, the, the notion of tell a story. Because in directing, you want to be, you have to be very objective in a bird's eye view, and then you have to be very subjective at the same, the next moment, you know. So all those kind of things went together. And then back to just your first role, which was as the Artful Dodger in your high school production of Oliver. I wanted to know, <laughs> at what point did you know you wanted that role? Because it seemed like you were the opposite of a ham. I was and very much the opposite of a ham and so always have So what made been. you be a loudmouth in a big old musical and that cockney, you know, that's like the the, the hammiest role in that it's show? It's not hammy at all. No, no, no. He's Artful very, Dodger? No, he's not hammy at all. He's very How'd you do of, it? I, I've been playing the same part ever since. I mean, it was the best role I ever had, and I play every role the same. <laughs> I have a joke. But, uh, it's a quiet con man? He's not a con man. He's just very... Clever and observant and facile and okay. uh, and very affectionate. Anyway. Uh, I know. I love this. I want to talk about the Artful Dodger. Uh, I mean, but I, how did I know I wanted that? I didn't, when I was auditioning and someone else was going to get the part. I was, I remember very clearly when I, you know, I'd been cut from the basketball team. My mom said, try out for the play. I'm like, I don't want to be in the play. I want to be the point guard. And I tried out for the play and looked like I was going to get it. And then this other kid, Matthew Quilty, he was a lovely guy, and uh, he had a very much prettier voice than I did and was taller and better looking than I was. So he was suddenly favored for the part. And I remember wanting, for the first time in my life, oh, that's mine, and stepping up in a way that I had no awareness of doing ever before and, or ability to do before and just getting that. And then, of course, then I stepped out on stage as the Artful Dodger, and, and, and my life just changed. It just was like, I, there I was. I think I just have one more question, which I think I asked you already, but I'm going to ask it again because it's important. Did you set out to make us all fall in love with you? <laughs> Were you <laughs> tapping into wanting to be loved by every woman watching you on screen over and over and over again, or was it just a lucky, uh, just a lucky accident? Just the luck of the draw. Oh, you're killing me. Andrew McCarthy. His book, Brat, an 80s story, is available for purchase at your favorite local bookstore. It's a great read. Thanks to our friend Julie Klausner for interviewing Andrew this week. 
Julie is the host of the very, very funny podcast, Double Threat, alongside our friend and upcoming Bullseye guest, Tom Sharpling. So give Double Threat a listen. Julie's the best. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California. We are once in a while inside the office these days. My producer Kevin was at our office overlooking beautiful MacArthur Park, and he saw a man riding his bicycle down the ramp that goes into the lake to scare away geese or something. But... Then his bike fell over in the water and he got all gross and wet. So our thoughts are with that guy. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer, Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. The Go Team's new record, Get Up Sequences, part one, is out now. It is hot. Go get it. Go team. They rule. You can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews there, and I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Hey there. You just listened to a whole episode of Bullseye, credits and all. First of all, thank you for doing that. Second, we would like you still to take a quick survey so we can learn what you think about NPR shows like Bullseye. The survey link is npr.org slash podcast survey. It doesn't take long. Your answers are completely anonymous. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. And thank you.